Hello and welcome back to Take 97, a film podcast with me, your host, David Ingram. On today's episode, I shall be discussing my final decade for you in this series of episodes, concluding my cinematic journey through the decades. I started off in the 1920s and I finally made it now to this episode, the 2010s. I shall be talking about another five films today from this decade and also as well in this episode as a bonus list i shall be going through briefly my top 10 list of films of all time spanning between the 1920s and the 2010s based on my number one pick from each episode so i will be getting into that a little bit later but for now let's get started on the 2010s top five that i've got for you today in at number five we have a wes anderson film now there's a few wes anderson films that have come out over the years and Lots of people love different parts of his filmography. Some people think he's just a little bit too hipstery and trendy and a bit too specific and niche for his uh, talents, shall we say. And the way he loves to indulge in this aesthetically pleasing choice of composition, shall we say. He loves the symmetrical element of filmmaking and doing symmetrical frames within his films, whilst also telling quite humorous and quite quirky niche stories as well. And this one is no different. This one is a ensemble cast piece. It jumps between time periods. And this film is The Grand Budapest Hotel. Released in 2014. It's got a stellar cast. I'm just going to name a couple for you here. Jude Law, Ray Fiennes, Adrian Brody, Tony Revolori, who's a relative newcomer to the scene at the time of the release of this film. And we've also got Sasha Ronan makes an appearance before all her Ladybird and Little Women stuff hit off big time, Tilda Swinton as well, as well as the impeccable Jeff Goldblum. There's so many more I could mention, Harvey Keitel, the list goes on and on and on. There's a big, massive cast. Wes Anderson films normally rely largely on ensemble cast to propel his stories forward, and the Grand Budapest Hotel is no different. It's split across a few different time periods. So we have the 1930s, 1932 specifically, which is presented in an academy aspect ratio, so 1.37 to 1. The 1960s, specifically 1968, in a more widescreen format of 240 to 1. And then there's the 80s, or present day-ish, or 1985 specifically, which is presented in a 1.85 to 1 aspect ratio. Now, because Wes Anderson's particularly specific about his film-making choices, this really shouldn't surprise you that he's decided to do a different aspect ratio relating to each of the different eras. The film, just to sum it up really, it's mostly set in the 1930s for the majority of the film. We start off in the 1980s with this young girl walking up to this little statue bust thing in a graveyard, which is like a memorial to this great author of this country that we're this like snow-filled european country and we see this girl looking up to this author with this copy of the book which has got the title of the film the grand budapest hotel on it and that's the 1980s and then go back in time and we see the author that she is looking at in real life we see him doing a little bit of narration to the camera and it takes us back to a much younger version of the author played by jude law in the 1960s, Jude Law is he's at the Grand Budapest Hotel, which we've seen on the front of the book, and he talks to the owner, Zero Mustafa, played by F. Murray Abraham, 
in the older version of this, and we get to meet Tony Revolori as the younger Zero in the 1930s. It's a bit like a Russian doll, the Grand Budapest Hotel. You start off with the bigger one, the present day, and then we work our way backwards into the time, into the smaller decades, and the frame size gets smaller as well, which kind of works like that. That's a nice analogy. But we see Jude Law, who narrates the 60s section, because he's the one writing the book about the Grand Budapest Hotel, and then we get the narration by F. Murray Abraham for the majority of the 1930s segment, where he tells the story of himself as a younger man and his relationship with the impeccable Gustav Age, the concierge of the Grand Budapest Hotel at the time, who is played by the amazing Rafe Fiennes. I think this film personally is a great highlight for Rafe Fiennes. He's done lots of other things, blockbuster appearances in James Bond, Harry Potter, but I do think the Grand Budapest Hotel is probably one of his most impeccable and amazing groundbreaking performances. It's humorous, it's light-hearted, it's really honest and emotional in some respects, and it's just really an enjoyable, fun character to get on board with for the majority of this film. And it is his character that we follow throughout the majority of this film in this 30 segment, where we trace his escapades with Zero as they try and take away Boy with Apple, this painting that has been left to Gustav H in the will of a character called Madame D, played by Tilda Swinton, a very old, rich lady who basically sought a lot of uh, personal comfort from Gustav in her spare time and used to visit the hotel very frequently. So there's a relationship thing there and like I mentioned, the character, like I mentioned, Adrian Brody stars in this. He plays the son, Dimitri, who doesn't want anyone interfering with the family business. He wants to take the majority of the estate and this painting, Boy of Apple, is a really absurd piece of random art but it's worth a lot of money sentimental and also monetary value they don't want to lose it the family and essentially we get to see Willem Dafoe as this hitman character go after Rafe Fiennes who is the joker in the room he doesn't take things seriously he always makes light of everything that's said and things get quite humorous but also his moral values are the thing that you've noticed the most about Gustav as a character. He's just a very witty, but also very sensitive soul. And, you know, there's lots of allusions to his many, many partners that he's had over the years. The fact that he used, basically used the Grand Budapest Hotel as a notching post to lay his bed for everyone else to come to him and for him to experience the most fun he could ever have in life. And, you know, he's just a, a freewheeling spirit then, shall we say. But yeah, we follow him and Zero taking Boy with Apple and going on the run. We lead to several other little escapades. There's a prison break in the middle of it, which involves Harvey Keitel. There's loads of sub little mini plots within the central story. And I just, it's a mad, mad film, but it's so well crafted, so well designed. The production design of the hotel itself, we get to, because it's set in the 30s as well, we get to see this transition from regular everyday the hotel and then it gets taken over by a form of the ss then the luftwaffe taking over during that period in history just before world war Two, and you get to see owen wilson out of all people being the concierge as well and this heart of it this relationship between the concierge gustav and lobby boy or bellhop zero mustafa who learns everything that he 
knows about the hotel trade from Gustav and it's a really lovely relationship I think you know whilst the film has chase scenes and comedy moments there's comical punches here and there as well I do think that the film it really demonstrates a strong bond between two friends and this friendship is very strong throughout so I do think that the Grand Budapest is a great funny witty thing to experience and if you're into your film studies and you like analysing the hell out of things, there's the aspect ratios for you. But like I said, I think my favourite moments from the Grand Budapest Hotel, ultimately, there's the reading of the will, which Deputy Kovacs, played by Jeff Goldblum, who reads the will of Madame D. We discover that Boy with Apple has been bequeathed to Gustav H. And you get this old man who just sits there and go, really confused and bewildered by the whole thing, goes, who's Gustav H.? I'm afraid that's me, darling. And it leads to absolutely sheer pandemonium. That's one of my favourite moments out of the entire film, I would say. It's just a unique, funny moment from Ray Fiennes. The prison break sequence, which I won't go into too much detail about, but there is a prison break sequence involving Ray Fiennes' character and Harvey Keitel and a bunch of other thugs in the prison. It's really funny because Paddington 2, whenever I watch Paddington 2... I always see the prison uniforms and I always think they look ever so similar to the Wes Anderson prison uniforms that you've got in the Grand Budapest Hotel. So, you know, I don't know 100% whether Paddington 2 was inspired by the Grand Budapest, but that's peak pop culture there, right there for you. A classic children's book of a bear has taken inspiration from something that's a little bit niche from Wes Anderson but yeah quirky static framing sometimes which adds to the nature of the film being a heightened reality as it were it's raw and emotional but at the same time you've got the camera work is so precise and quirky that you feel like you're in like a, a second reality as it were the Wes Anderson universe I absolutely love it to pieces Gustav H is a great character and the relationship between him and Zero is amazing. Costume design as well. The colour palette for this is absolutely stunning. You know, you get the reds, the pinks. And when it does go dark and grey, there's still a bit of light in there. So you notice it pops off the screen. Absolutely cannot recommend that film enough. You got to watch it. It's a saga of absolute hilarity, emotion, and just general humanity, really, from the get-go. So, The Grand Budapest Hotel. Aspect ratio shifting, quirky cinema. In at number four... I have a film that everybody who's into their comic books will love. People will be saying now, why are you picking such a populist piece of cinema? Well, because I love it. I don't care. And that is the Russo brothers. So Joe and Anthony Russo, the 2018, I say sequel. It's a fourth in like a series of films, as it were, and like one of 23 films in total in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I am talking about the absolute god of all superhero films to date, unless you count in Zack Snyder's Justice League, for those of you DC fans out there, but that's not on here, Avengers Endgame. Avengers Endgame has so many bits that I love. I've mentioned it on my Movie Moments episode with Gov Chandran before, but Avengers Endgame, whilst it's a three-hour-long epic, and you think, how can you do a film that's that long about people from you know, different realities or mythologies and stuff, superheroes? How can you sustain fight sequences for three hours? Well, it's not all about the fighting. There's some emotional moments in there, you know. But I ultimately think that Avengers Endgame, it has to be on this list because in the 2010s, I think one of the films that really cemented the importance of cinema and the experience of going to the cinema that shared experience of being in the dark and watching a big 
screen lit up. And yes, Martin Scorsese says that superhero films are not cinema and they're more like circus fair rides and stuff like that. He's entitled to his opinion. It's not the most complicated of narratives. I mean, there's some convoluted bits here and there because of the whole time travel element in it that's involved, which they have to go back in time to literally revisit like the MCU's greatest hits. We get to go back in time to see the Avengers in the original Avengers film. And I will say now I'm going to mention a couple of spoilers. So if you haven't seen Avengers Endgame, what are you doing with yourself? But secondly, I'm not going to hold back on this. Going back to the Avengers going back in time to moments in Thor The Dark World, loads of different moments from the MCU's like crucial timeline relating to the Infinity Stones, which we were sort of really introduced to throughout the majority of this saga, but mostly we got to understand how they work together, these stones, in the Infinity Gauntlet, which Thanos has in Infinity War, which was the film that preceded this one. And obviously anybody who's a comic book fan will understand the mythology behind all of this stuff anyway but in terms of the films this film it takes so many different story strands and gives you a load of different payoffs and treats you to different variations on characters for instance Thor is a yeah he's a big strong muscly guy and he's the god of thunder but we get to see him lose himself a little bit he gets a bit fat he is fat Thor but I do think that it's been said a lot before it's a real good interpretation of somebody's mental state and the fact that he can still wield Milnor at one point shows he's worthy and it basically says that no matter how much you lose your way there's a road to recovery out there and it's kind of a nice allegorical tale in that respect saying that you know things do get better but ultimately it's a real good depiction of a mental health state as it were but then on top of that you've got all the fun comic booky action we were bro- my heart was broken again spoilers here but my heart was broken when spider-man faded and dusted at the end of infinity war we then get this amazing return by the end of the film of all our heroes so half of the heroes that we see in infinity war have faded away into dust we even get to see a little bit of that at the end of ant-man and the wasp as well connecting up to endgame and the whole plot between that but this film is filled with so many iconic set pieces and moments that i can mention so many bits but just here are a couple of my highlights from the film we have the that's america's ass that's one highlight for me it's a really just funny kooky moment from marvel you know they're always about the wisecracks and i think seeing two captain americas two steve rogers characters fighting on screen together because one of them thinks the other's loki (laughs) because of the timeline relating to the first avengers film in 2012 i i think it's just a fun little piece of interacting with one's history in a a non-complex manner you just seeing them together you don't care about paradoxes you just seeing them together and then the little highlight at the end that somebody goes that's america's ass and then he goes that is america's ass when he beats himself down on the floor i just think it's just a really funny moment but the other moments that i really did like and it's the thing that really stands out to me about avengers endgame we i talk about cinema on this a lot and the way it's constructed the shots and everything whilst avengers endgame is mostly standard blockbuster I would say the emotional impact, if you've watched all the MCU films, and especially if you've watched this on a big screen, anyone can relate to this. But when I watched this on a cinema screen, I like there was a cheer in the room when the next bit happened. So again, spoilers ahead, but Avengers assemble. And that's where it ends up. We see Thor 
Captain America and Iron Man taking on Thanos after they think they've brought everyone back. They think things have gone back to normal, but Thanos comes to attack and the big bad purple guy. And next thing you know, battle is had. They're all sort of beaten down. Cap's shield is broken. And all of a sudden you just hear this, this little intercom bit where he's like, on your left. And next thing you know, Black Panther comes through. Chadwick Boseman, the way he just comes through one of the portals that Doctor Strange has created. And I'm just talking about it now. It's giving me goosebumps. My hair's standing on end literally right now just talking about it. But the music, the way they come up through the portals and you see them all. Falcon fly through the air. You see Doctor Strange and everyone from Titan join. Wakanda is all in sync. I just... Oh, honestly it gives me chills just talking about it and you see them all joined together and the moment where he goes Avengers and then Milnor comes to his hand and he goes assemble and I just I, I cannot tell you how much I love that moment um, and also the moment before as well where we actually discover that Cap is worthy of Milnor when he seems to be beaten and all of a sudden the hammer lifts and you think Thor's gonna get it possibly but everyone the tension in the cinema was just absolutely mind-blowing and then the minute the hammer just goes past and goes boom into his hand it's just an absolutely amazing moment and i think it's it still to this day gives me chills so i'm sorry for anyone who hasn't watched that i did warn you that spoilers were ahead but honestly the music for portals it just oh, it gives me chills every time not to spoil it too much Again, even though I've already done it loads already, but I do think that battle itself is so well choreographed and you've got little moments from each of the characters. You've got the Guardians of the Galaxy. You've got the original Avengers in there as well. You've got other characters as well, like Captain Marvel coming in, various other people, the Ant-Man and the Wasp, all of them joining together in one massive force against a big bad guy. Like, it's total CGI fest along with a few actors in there but like i just love it i think it's a crowd pleaser and to watch it on a big screen if I was able to watch it on a cinema screen again i totally would so that's why number four it was very hard not to put that quite close to the top but there are other films that i absolutely loved to pieces so avengers endgame at number four but moving on to number three on my list honestly i love all these films so much but this one's a bit more of a raw emotional experience for me it's a biopic based around the real-life events that led to the creation of the 1964 film Mary Poppins. It's released in 2013, directed by John Lee Hancock, who's the director behind The Blind Side and a few other films as well. And it stars Emma Thompson as P.L. Travers, or Travers Goff. She has various names, Pamela Travers or Helen Goff, as she was a child. And she's the author of the Mary Poppins books. Tom Hanks plays Walt Disney. And this film is Saving Mr. Banks. I think this is a genuinely heartwarming film. It's, you know, obviously every story that's told as a based on true events kind of thing always takes creative licensing. You're never going to be 100% correct with everything because there's always going to be dispute between different parties thinking that wasn't how it happened. That's not how I saw it. But I think for what it is, it does a really good job at presenting a heartwarming story of a woman who grew up with so much strife and struggle in her childhood to then go on to write a book based on how she would cope with those struggles like she's bringing something of her own life into a fictional world mary poppins as the film sort of dictates 
Mary Poppins, the books, is based around something she experienced herself, but with a bit more magic in there. Even though she probably wouldn't admit that it was meant to be as magical as she made it out to be. This is the film about how Walt Disney and P.L. Travers came to blows and eventually got the film Mary Poppins made. Because Walt Disney makes a promise to his daughters that he will get the book of Mary Poppins made because they enjoyed the book so much they want to see a film of it. We see all these different quirks that P.L. Travers doesn't like cartoons, even though cartoons end up in the film. We see how she reluctantly gives in to get the film made because she's running out of finances the book royalties aren't really bringing up as much as they would like to the publishers would like to and she's not willing to write another book so a film adaptation is the next stage a lovely transitioning shot where we go from a child of her played by the very lovely and sweet annie rose buckley as ginty or helen goth as a child and we see her looking up to the sky and then we transition into Emma Thompson looking up in the same position with her eyes closed in her office in her house in London. I just think some of the filmmaking nuances are so good in this and we get to see some sun-kissed landscapes as well which are like meant to be Australia as well. I'm sure I don't think they actually filmed it on Australia but Australian settings and we get to see Colin Farrell who I think does an absolutely amazing powerhouse job. I think what Ray Fiennes did a good job in Grand Budapest. Chris Evans did a tour de force thing in Endgame. I think for me, even though Tom Hanks is one of the two main leads, so him and Emma Thompson in this film, I do think Colin Farrell, even though he's only shown in flashback sequences to P.L. Travers's childhood, I think Colin Farrell does an absolutely fantastic job as the father, Travers Goff, in this film. And a really heartbreaking performance as well, because he falls ill and ultimately drink kills him and drive him away from being the family man that he ought to be and that his daughter always wanted him to be as well and that's the thing with this film it shows you stuff that happened with the making of mary poppins but we also delve into a version of the story of ginty she is the young pl travers she's filled with joy and enthusiasm but then we slowly see her lose her spark and we see her gradually lose it and having to take care of her mum then having to cope with her father being ill as well. And a lot of parallels can be drawn between the actual events of the Mary Poppins film, the events in real life which are shown in the in this film, Saving Mr. Banks, and then the flashback sequences, we actually start the film off in Australia in the early 1900s. And it's just such a lovely... We see these palm trees, this lovely sky with clouds, and we were introduced to... It's a bit like Chim Chimney, Chim Chim Jeru, but this is a version, so it's a slowed-down piano version which has a bit of dialogue from Colin Farrell over the top of it. It's mostly at the end of the film we get that as well. We get him speaking over this lovely piano melody that's played based on the music from Mary Poppins by the Sherman Brothers. But I ultimately think that this is just a brilliant love letter to two periods, both the 60s. We get to see you know California in the 1960s, the 1900s Australia and we get a very stark contrast between the two of them both really sunny locations and we begin the film with one thing and we end it with the same thing again so a very cyclical nature of filmmaking is presented there I do honestly love the way that we start off with these palm trees and the sunshine and the sky and the chim chim cheree and then we end it with a similar thing as well I think it's such a lovely a bit like a storybook kind of like here's the story of this and then that was the story of this and we're talking about a film, about a book, and the creation of its film. The book itself 
it's a children's book. So naturally, this is going to be approached in, with some book-like qualities, like bookends. And I think that's the great thing about it, the cinematic language of this. So many things that jump out to me is this, the performance of Annie Rose Buckley. She's such a sweet little girl in this, and it's very heartbreaking to see her happiness and joy destroyed by her father's drinking problem and general struggles in life with his work as well. And we see how that emotionally affects P.L. Travers and makes her the woman that she is, the bitter, stubborn woman who's lost all her sense of joy in childhood and put most of what she had left into her books. And Tom Hanks is there as Walt Disney, but we don't really care about him at the end of the day. We care more about her and the child in the flashbacks that we see. And I think the last thing I can say about this, there's some key moments from this film that I love. There's the cinema premiere right at the end of the film where we see P.L. Travers being a bit up at, stiff up a lip and being stuck there being, oh, I don't really like all this tackiness, but she sort of gets into it. There's a nice connection. We have a Mickey Mouse soft toy that she jokes around with and talks to strangely in the hotel room and then there's a giant mickey mouse costumed person who stands around and then takes her arm and takes her in and there's such a sweet lovely serenity about it in a way because you've got this emotional moment and we see her reactions to the film of mary poppins that's been created in 1964 everyone else is laughing and smiling at the pictures on screen she's not a fan of the cartoon part of it but she gets on with it really at the end of the day and then we see her pleasantly enjoy Step in Time, which she thinks is quite in a good bit. I didn't don't know why she thought that bit was better than any of the other bits, but she liked that bit. And then she gets to the end because we actually see her in a rehearsal segment with some of the creative team, Bob and Dick Sherman, writing a song, Let's Go Fly Kite. She sees it on film and she sees the final moments of the film and she starts realising, because Mr Banks is meant to be an embodiment of her father, and that's the idea that she's saving her father, ultimately, in the fictional realm. And she sees so much of her father in this character, which is why she was opposed to having a moustache put on him, which is more of a request from Walt Disney than anything. But she watches the film, and the music just swells up after you hear some of the dialogue with Julie Andrews in it. And you see her begin to cry, and she just really seems to be engaged with the film and I think it honestly brings a tear to my eye every time I see it she starts crying it plays out into the chim chim cheree with Colin Farrell's dialogue over the end of the film and it's beautifully done I would say the, and that brings me on to the last point about is the score by Thomas Newman who is yeah he does a great job on this particular highlights from the score soundtrack are the Beverly Hills Hotel Suite and Ginty My Love those two along with the chim chim cheree are my favourite scored moments in film i love me some john williams but thomas newman does a fantastic job on this capturing the free-flowing atmosphere of both california and the sun-kissed nature of australia back in the 1900s i just think it is an emotional ride and a beautiful film some lovely shots in there and a great character study overall so i highly recommend saving mr banks but yeah i love that film to pieces and we're moving on to number two now. And again, it's going to be another emotional roller coaster. I do apologize, but we're going down in tone for this one. We're getting a little bit less sort of joyful. And number two is a 2012 film directed and written by Stephen Chabowski, who wrote the original novel. This is based on the 1999 novel of the same name. This film, it's a real ensemble effort with Logan Lerman's Charlie, Ezra Miller as Patrick, Emma Watson as Sam, 
three teenagers at high school in America. I think he's in Pittsburgh, I believe, I want to say, based around the author's actual real life. And that is the 2012 film, The Perks of Being a Wallflower. Now, this one, it's set in the 1990s, just as the book is, because I love the book. It's, you know, I watched the film first and then read the book, ashamedly, but the book is written in a series of letters of Charlie writing to his friend, an anonymous, no-named friend. And we are that friend. The audience, the reader, is that friend. But in the film, you've got to change things up a bit. You've got to add actual dialogue between characters. Like, there's dialogue in the letter saying, oh, so-and-so said this to me. But we've got to add actual core scenes in this, other than narration, because it could get quite boring. And I think... Because the author, Stephen Chabowski, adapted this for the screen, I think that's why it's worked so well. It's got a cracking soundtrack. It features David Bowie's heroes at the middle of the film and somewhere at the end as well, where We Are Infinite is the thing of the film, where you just step back and think, let it go, free flow. Uh, it's a tale of coming of age, the 1990s. Uh, we get to see issues of homosexuality with... We get to see issues of bullying and topics of homosexuality with the character of Patrick and his stepsister, Sam, who played by Emma Watson. Although people don't often like Emma Watson doing the American accent in this, I don't think I really mind, to be honest. I think it's okay. I would say she does a fairly okay job by comparison to some people who can't do American accents at all. But Sam is the love interest for Charlie. They are... Charlie, Patrick and Sam, they're all firm friends throughout the majority of this. And we follow Charlie as this main character who's a, a loner who's been in a hospital previously before he goes to this new school, to high school. And he's, you know, he's lost his friend. His friend's committed suicide. It's a real big puncher at the beginning of the film. And the film's not even got started yet. Yeah, we're just getting introduced to him as a character. As he, We see these lovely shots at night time of, I believe it is Pittsburgh or somewhere similar that's shot for these nighttime drive round scenes and little lovely vistas of the nighttime of this city. And then we meet Charlie as he's writing a note to his friend, this anonymous friend, like the book does. And we get to really get to know him as a character who's looking just to make friends and fit in. And ultimately, this is why I love it, because coming-of-age films I love. I've mentioned Perks of Being a Wallflower before, so I won't go into too much detail about it. But yeah, Charlie faces issues of because he's a little bit socially awkward, he doesn't really know what to do in social situations. He only really had one friend before, or two friends. He doesn't have them now. He somehow manages to find himself in the company of these seniors, so Sam and Patrick. And he falls in love with Sam, and it's an enduring love story, coming-of-age tale. We see several key moments I could point out from this. There's the moment where Charlie actually meets Sam and Patrick at this football match, well, American football match, the school, where he just sits on his own and he overhears conversation with one of the people that he knows from his class, and it's Patrick. And it's a nice, lovely moment where he just goes, oh, do you mind if I sit here? And you see that human connection. I love a good human story. If it's a little bit slow, sometimes it's okay. But if it's too slow, it's too it's really boring. I won't be on board with it at all. But this one, I think, it's not a massively long film. It's only about 90 minutes or so. It really does translate that coming-of-age, trying to fit in and find friends experience that most of us will probably relate to in some respect. Regardless of where you live in the world, everyone can sort of relate to on some level trying to find yourself and find the friends and the people and the group where you belong and that sense of belonging. Uh, we get to see Charlie accidentally try drugs at one point in brownies and we see his sort of unstable mind of a loner go 
into super ultra confident mode and he regrets it afterwards. I'd say there's a classic hero's journey vibe at this where you see Charlie, a loner, he finds friends, he loses the friends and then he goes back to finding them again when something bad really happens at the towards the end of the film. But the thing I'd like to point out more about this is the cinematography, the soft focus lighting. I believe it's shot on film. It has such a warm glow to it, like an orangey, burnt orange kind of tone to it. And other times there's a bit of more of a muted tone as well in the palette. But I think that the emotional connection between Emma Watson and Logan Lerman is great. There's a scene where they're sat on the bed together where she's opening up to him about her past experiences with an older man who she had sexual encounters with. And this sets off Charlie's head with a memory and a flashback of being abused as a child. I genuinely, it's such a shocking film, a very honest, open film from Stephen Chbosky. It always doesn't make me cry as such, but it always sort of gets me feeling a bit like really emotional and also very engaged, so to speak, and making me nostalgic for when, like those moments when you're meeting new people for the first time, where you find love, where you find this and that. And it comes together in this 90s filled place. And because it's set in the 90s, it's kind of timeless as well, because you don't have a mobile phone in the middle of it, like a smartphone. You might have a computer maybe in some like late 90s productions, but I do think ultimately when you want a raw emotional story, you want to get to the heart of it. And by putting a smartphone in it and product placement, it's a bit tacky. I, I, I don't think it's the right way to go. So this, I think because of its timeless setting, that's why Ladybird went back to the 2000s. Although there were mobile phones and computers, it wasn't so much that it was like the big tech age like we have now. So Perks of Being a Warflower is a brilliant film with a raw emotional connection between these three actors. Ezra Miller as well does a brilliant emotional performance as Patrick who has his own subplot storyline, which I'll let you guys discover. But ultimately it's all about Charlie and Charlie is our lead narrator who can kind of be unreliable in some respects because he's unstable in his mind. But at the same time, you feel for him and you want him to succeed and you're rooting for him at the end of the day so yeah and it's shot with beautiful care and consideration lovely fairy lights in the moment where we have sam and charlie talking to each other we have moments like that a lot throughout the film and when it's shot in the school it's very stark and the camera is almost shaky kind of like a handheld camera effect you get that raw edginess of the film and it's not as glossy as a big hollywood production I love it for that independent quirk, shall we say. And and Paul Rudd as well, for a big star, he's starring in this film and he's doing the supportive teacher thing. But ultimately, the moment from the tunnel where they go into this light-filled tunnel, which has got that haze about it as well, that film only gives you, with David Bowie's heroes playing, and that monologue from Charlie at the end of the film, which I encourage you guys to watch, is probably one of my favourite moments of the film, 100%. So, Perks Being a Wallflower is my number two pick. In at number one is, this is my favourite film. <laughs> it's one of my favourite films. I don't care that people don't like this one. My favourite film, in the 2010 specifically, is a 2013 film which I saw whilst I was learning about history at school and learning about the Great Depression and the big boom in America and Wall Street and stuff like that. It's set in the 1920s. It's uh, based on the 1925 novel of the same name, written by... F. Scott Fitzgerald. It stars Tobey Maguire as Nick Carraway, Carrie Mulligan as Daisy Buchanan, Joel Edgerton as Tom Buchanan, Elizabeth Debicki as Jordan Baker, and the impeccable Leonardo DiCaprio as Jay Gatsby. And that, my friends, is what my number one pick is for the 2010s. The Great Gatsby, the Baz Luhrmann 2013 film. Now, 
whilst people will say, why do you like that? That's such a weird film. It's not even that good. I don't really care. I think it's got such a, a lovely craftsmanship about it. Yes, there's lots of blue screen and green screen stuff involved for visual effects and such, but I think the performances really sell it. I think even though Tobey Maguire is only really known for very few films these days, including the Spider-Man films, and then when he did Spider-Man 3, it kind of killed his career. Tobey Maguire, as Nick Carraway, does a brilliant performance as our narrator for the story. As he is in the book, he's the narrator of the film. And his encounters with Jay Gatsby, this rich man in this mansion, mysterious man, who just moved into this house to see the girl he once knew when he was younger. And that's essentially the story. The story is just Jay Gatsby trying to make contact with Daisy, who is married to a rich Chicago man who doesn't really love her as much as Jay Gatsby thinks he should do because he's having an affair with the likes of Isla Fisher, this mechanic's wife in the valley of ashes which is another great set piece the the film itself is filled with so many great set pieces for instance the valley of ashes like i mentioned is where a big moment in the film happens a car accident i won't say much more on that there's a few scenes that take place there we get to meet myrtle played by isla fisher and her husband wilson we get to see the dingy side of new york just outside new york city again this film is set in new york city it ticks all my boxes it's set in the 20s it's got like all the jazz themes in there but baz Luhrmann doesn't do things by halves and baz Luhrmann uses hip-hop and pop mixed in with traditional 1920s jazz to make it accessible for a contemporary audience he did this with romeo and juliet in the 1990s again with leonardo dicaprio he makes a film accessible to a modern generation and that in this case you know it's not changing the setting or the period of the piece at all it's bringing in the flavor of music so mixing music together to make things a little bit more you know understandable because the 1920s were filled with mass hysteria parties the vibe of the music mixing jazz which is such an emotional form of music and hip-hop and rap and r&b will ultimately help people understand of a modern age who don't necessarily understand jazz much all the 1920s how these people they enjoyed themselves and what it felt like to be in that moment and that's what leads me on to my next point of the Jay Gatsby party scenes all of them I love them they just really set the scene they're so opulent the production design is amazing it's filled with color and exuberance from all the designs the collaborations with Tiffany and co and the Beaver Brooks guys all the suits and everything like that and then the music adds that to that heightened reality and which leads me on to my favorite point of the party scene specifically. We flip back and forth between Jordan and Nick having a bit of a flirtatious moment. They bump into an old man in Gatsby's library discussing who Gatsby is and they don't know who he is. And we cut between them talking and the booming pulsating beat of the party itself. A little party never killed nobody like Fergie and Goonrock and Q-Tip. Great song, really good song, even out of the film. It's a brilliant song to listen to. And then we get to meet Jay Gatsby. Slowly, it's the cinematic language of this. My seeing his hand, the ring of Jay Gatsby, taking a glass off of a tray, and we only see part of his body, his arm. It's like bit by bit by bit. He, he's talking to Nick, and Nick doesn't know who Gatsby is because he's invited him to this party. He's not aware who his host is. And then we get, I'm Gatsby. And then fireworks go off behind him and that brilliant... Like, if you send the gif, you'll send the gif. You'll know what it looks like. But it's he cheers to Nick. And Nick looks so surprised that he's just been talking to Gatsby the entire time. 
I would say, and music choice again, it's not a pop track that's chosen for this, but it's the Rhapsody in Blue, which is a very long piece of music, but it accompanies this build-up to the reveal of Gatsby so well. And it also sums up the 20s as well. It's very period, but it's very engaging. And you have that slow motion as he raises the glass to Nick. I I think it's perfect cinematic beauty at its best. And I mentioned the songs, Love is the Drug by Brian Ferry and his orchestra doing a jazz cover of one of the Roxy Music songs, Where the Wind Blows, Bang Bang, and the love theme for the film, Young and Beautiful by Lana Del Rey, which is haunting to listen to, especially watching some of the visuals that Baz brings to this. And ultimately, I think, and I think Leonardo DiCaprio, he does a fantastic job with this. He really does really does a brilliant job on this i think yeah he won the oscar for the revenant but i genuinely think he didn't really deserve it for the revenant because all he did was nearly kill himself whilst doing a really overhyped film i don't i don't get the revenant i think as an actor as a dramatic actor in the great gatsby shutter island yeah he's done so many good films but i think yeah he deserved an oscar for something else that wasn't the revenant because i just think that was rubbish and in this case i think The Great Gatsby should have been one of his nominations, but he never got nominated for it. The film only got nominated for, I think it was costume and production design, and I think there was music as well, but no acting nods. I think Jay Gatsby is such a complex, intriguing character that people read into so much these days that we forget how, if you get the right actor, he can portray the right essence of the character, I suppose, and get it right. And I think Leo does it really well on this film, so... It's set in New York. The decadence of the period is just clear to see. I love the vistas of New York City, even if they are computer generated. I do love the look of it. And Baz's style is absolutely like hyper reality. And it picks the right moments from the book. I love the book. The film is only two and a half hours. And I think it does the best job that it could do. It's not as stilted or static as the 1970s version, in my opinion. But then again, I'm all about this new version, so I can understand I'm a bit jaded on that. But ultimately, The Great Gatsby is great. And the cinematography throughout and the production design, plus Leo's performance, I think it genuinely really sells it to me. And I know I can overstate this point because people won't like this. And some people will agree and others won't. But I think The Great Gatsby to me is truly a great film. And that is why it's my number one pick of the 2010s. So that's it. I'm a, that, that's a very, I know I've gone through, I've talked a lot in this episode. There's so much to cover and I tried to cover it as quickly as possible uh, whilst giving you sort of recommendations and everything. But I'm now going to move on to two subsections of this podcast. My top 10 of the 1920s through to the 2010s. And also I'm going to mention some honourable mentions. So films that I missed across the years. So several ones that I thought would be worth highlighting. First of all, we're going to get started with my top 10, 1920s to 2010s list. At number 10, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari from 1920, my 1920s episode. Number 9, Chicago from my 2000s episode. Number 8, The Wizard of Oz from the 1930s. Number 7, Sunset Boulevard from the 1950s. Number 6, The Naked City from the 1940s. Number 5, Grease from my 1970s episode. Number 4, Jackie Brown from my 1990s episode. Number three, Midnight Cowboy from my 1960s episode. Number two, Fame from my 1980s episode. And finally, as you probably guessed it, from the recent episode that I've just done today, from the 2010s, The Great Gatsby. In at number one. 
that's my top 10 for you guys of my decades of all time, as it were. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and all the other episodes so far, if you've been listening to them from the very beginning. Very quickly, I'll just mention the ones that I've missed off. So from the 1980s, didn't mention the Indiana Jones films, specifically the Temple of Doom. Uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark starts it all off, but the Temple of Doom I really do love for its like 1940s aesthetic and feel and everything like that. I love the showgirl moment at the beginning and like the heisty nature of it all. And Blade Runner, the original 1982 Ridley Scott film. Obviously, I've only seen the final cut, but that's a brilliant film as well. Other highlights from the 70s, I'd say Taxi Driver is one. The Exorcist, I already mentioned as well. The 1990s, I missed off Angel Heart as a contender as well by Alan Parker, with Robert De Niro and Mickey Rourke in the leading roles. In the 2010s, I'd say Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Bad Times of the El Royale. Whilst they are quite similar films, and I would say Bad Times is the better film, I would argue that, you know, both of them have their flaws and also their positive points as well and then from the 2000s inglorious bastards moulin rouge those are great films the 50s rebel without cause was a good film as well 1930s i had the invisible man down as a contender as well it's a wonderful life from the 1940s trial by orson wells a very surreal piece of cinema from the 1960s that's a interesting one for anyone who wants to check that out uh, i didn't pick anything from the 1920s really that i missed off because i was quite happy with that list i've mentioned so many films and i thank you so much for listening to me go on about the films that i love for a whole 10 episodes if you've made it through all of these well done thank you so much <laughs> i'm glad you're still with me if you're still here and i hope to bring you some more in-depth reviews as we go forward i've been trying to do this as streamlined as possible but for now that's a wrap on take 97 the 2010s edition of the podcast and the decade series as a whole has come to a conclusion so thank you so much for listening and i'll catch you on the next episodes where there'll be more guests more in-depth reviews and as we get back to cinemas i look forward to talking about all these brand new movies that i'm so excited to watch and discuss with you thank you again for listening guys it's been an absolute pleasure bringing you this series week after week and that's all i have to say really thank you very much guys see you later <laughs>